This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. My name is Elise McDonough. I'm a cannabis cookbook author and currently the brand manager for Satori Confections in California. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven company dedicated to enhancing critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about life and the natural world. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. Biodiversity loss due to habitat loss and fragmentation is rapidly increasing around the world with devastating consequences. Learn how you can help contribute to native habitat corridors in your community and reconnect with your wild neighbors at gardenwild.org. Oregon recently became the first state in the United States to legalize the medical use of psilocybin. As cities all over the country begin to decriminalize the use of entheogenic plants and fungi, it's time to have a serious discussion about psychedelics. The Serious About Psychedelics limited series podcast is coming soon. Learn more at SeriousAboutPsychedelics.com. You can learn more about Natural Learning Enterprises at naturaledu.com. And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I'm really excited to get to talk all about edibles with Elise McDonough, who has written multiple cannabis cookbooks and just has a ton of information to share. Thanks so much, Elise, for being willing to come on the podcast today. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. I don't think I've ever really talked about edibles on the podcast before. So this will be kind of a uh, a really good breath of fresh air, I think, for a lot of people listening that have questions um, about this, this area. And for those that aren't already familiar with some of your work, because you've done not just the publishing of the cookbooks, but you've done writing kind of um, all over the place for, for years. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit with our listeners, um, a little bit about, about your background and how you found yourself caught up in the world of cannabis edibles? 
Yeah, I got started with edibles working at High Times. Uh, so I got a job at High Times right out of college, which was kind of like winning the lottery. Um, yeah. You know, it was definitely like a dream job for me. And so I worked there for uh, 15 years. I became their first ever edibles editor, and I wrote the official High Times Cannabis Cookbook. Um, so that really solidified my position as, you know, a person of note in the cannabis edible space. And the cookbook came out in 2012. So it was right at the start of this burgeoning trend towards cannabis cookbooks, which have become a, a genre unto themselves. So that's how I got started. And uh, since leaving High Times, I've authored the Bong Appetit cookbook and have gone on to have many articles published in Leafly and Cannabis Now. And I currently work as a brand manager at Canacraft, which is California's largest cannabis manufacturer. And I primarily work on uh, confections, including our Satori chocolate brand. That's really cool. And <clears throat> does your um, interest for for cooking and food, um, does that is that something that you've always kind of had a passion for, you know, even as like as a child? Or is that something that um, came about later with cannabis? Yeah, I really got interested in cooking when I became a vegetarian. You know, I was mm -hmm. kind of like a hippie teenager, and I decided I wanted to be a vegetarian when I was 15. And my mom is, you know, super nice lady. She's great. And she said, well, you know, you can eat whatever you want, but I'm not going to cook you special food. So that really prompted me to start cooking for myself more, which I continued uh, when I went to New York City for college. I got really into cooking and learning about all kinds of different diets. Um, I took some classes on nights and weekends at the Natural Gourmet Institute. <clears throat> so yeah, taking classes at the Natural Gourmet Institute really solidified my basic knowledge. And um, I just always really enjoyed cooking and adding the cannabis was just a natural next step. <laughs> totally. And, and how did that start out for you? What were some of the first things that you tried to cook with cannabis? Oh, wow. We started a lot with uh, like pie crusts and like pumpkin mm. pie. That was something that I would make. And we would recreate recipes that were sent into high times uh, so that we could take photos. So that helped me like broaden my horizons. I made a lot of different things, um, things that maybe Chef Raw would have sent in a recipe or Ashley Boudreaux was a contributor that we worked with for a long time and she's in New Orleans. So she would send a lot of, you know, yeah. Cajun and Creole type recipes that were infused. So starting off with stuff like that, usually a lot of pretty simple things, mastering the basics of, you know, the butter and uh, infusing into fats and coconut oil. And then, yeah, making a lot of cookies, making a lot of basic stuff. I lived in New York city at, at the time and I had a, a super small kitchen um, so yeah, we would just make what we could. And among the staff at high times, we would take turns bringing in different infused treats every Friday that we would share with each other. And that was a, a tradition called space cake Friday. Um, yeah, so a lot of good times just making brownies and cookies and, uh, you know, baklava was a favorite. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And what did you, uh, you know, through that period of mastering some of those basics, like for instance, you mentioned the butter. Um, what did you learn through that process? Like, what does it take to make a good cannabis infused butter? You know, this is something that we worked on for High Times in a video called the Ultimate Canna Butter Experiment. 
And it was super interesting to me because I was working all of these events, going to the Cannabis Cup, Seattle Hemp Fest, standing behind a booth. People will always come up to you and tell you stories. And I would get a lot of tips about this is the best way you make a can of butter. You do it on the full moon and you add a tablespoon of water every hour and you stir it for 24 hours nonstop. Like you get, you hear the wildest thing. Mm -hmm. And everybody would always say, well, my method is the best way. And, you know, so basically I decided to test out several different methods of making can of butter using the same weed, the same kind of butter, the same quantities, four different methods. And then we had the results analyzed by SC Labs in, in Santa Cruz to see if there really was, you know, a, an efficient way uh, better than the others. <clears throat> so we uncovered some really interesting things. And basically what I tell people about infusions is that there is a way to do it with the equipment that you have on hand. Like you don't mm -hmm. have to go out and buy special gadgets or gear to make a cannabis infusion at home. Um, so usually when people ask me for advice, I, I start by asking, you know, what's their skill level, what kind of equipment do they have at home and what are they trying to make with the butter? Because that can, uh, affect, you know, the, the kind of concentrations that you'll want to achieve. Do you want just to infuse a little bit of cannabis in a lot of butter? Do you want to infuse a lot of cannabis into a small amount of butter? So there's a great many considerations, but yeah, I definitely uh, encourage people to check out the ultimate can of butter experiment. Uh, there's a really cool method in there that I like a lot from uh, Jeff, the 420 chef, and he uses a French press to do the infusion, oh. which is uh, pretty convenient, pretty ingenious. And then the Bong Appetit method is the mason jar method, which I also like because you can infuse uh, uh, several different fats simultaneously. Each fat goes into a mason jar with the cannabis. You close the jar, you put it into uh, just some simmering water, and that will uh, infuse the fat inside the jar. And that's helpful if you're trying to cut down on the odor of cannabis in your home or if you live in an uh. apartment building or something like that. It's a little more stealthy. So there's a million different ways to make can of butter, and they all work. <laughs> and that's what's important is like, if you just want a method that will get you high, it's as simple as just, you know, throwing some weed and some butter in a crock pot and letting it simmer for at least an hour and then straining it. Like that is the most basic. Yeah, totally. And and when you were uh, playing around with all of this, let's say going back to some of the first times that you started cooking with cannabis. Uh, did you run into it, the smell issue particularly is something that I'm thinking about. Did you have uh, moments of making your entire place just uh, smell incredibly like cannabis everywhere? Oh, yeah. You could smell it when you walked in the front door. And I lived in like a fifth floor <laughs> walk up in Manhattan with like, you know, a pretty small building with a few other neighbors and they all knew about us. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we would try to cook other like really pungent things at mm -hmm. the same time, like, you know, caramelize some onions, saute some garlic, like get some other uh, smells up in the mix. So it doesn't seem to be too obvious what you're doing, but um, yeah, there's really no covering it up unless you uh, use a method specifically designed to keep the smells inside. Yeah, and, and that actually leads to a, another thing that I, I've been curious to talk to you about for a while is the what are some of the complementary um, 
smells and tastes that you find really partner with cannabis well? Well, cannabis, if you're working with cannabis flower or buds, mm -hmm. it's so herbace herbaceous that it, it's really grassy. And that's because mm -hmm. of the chlorophyll inside. Um, that is the very characteristic flavor of cannabis that a lot of people don't like. If you try to put it in baked goods or in cookies, you know, it's very noticeable. Um, I find that if you're working in savory applications, the flavor of the flower actually works better. Uh, you can use it more like an herb. It works well in recipes where there's other herbs uh, like pesto or chimichurri. That's a really good application for cannabis flower. Um, I personally like to cook with hash, which I feel is better suited for dessert recipes usually. Like mm. the hash has a really nice earthy flavor on its own. And, um, you know, it works well in any kind of recipe where you're using cinnamon or nutmeg mm -hmm. or cloves. You know, hash really complements those kind of spices. I like to use ice water hash or just uh, unpressed beef uh, for stuff like that. Um, but I find it, yeah, if you're cooking with cannabis flour, Traditionally, people would use flavors like peanut butter or chocolate to kind of cover it up. Uh, that's part of the reason why brownies are so popular. Right. If you're cooking like lighter, more delicate desserts, the flavor is just overwhelming. Um, so you, you don't really want to use cannabis flour to infuse like a lemon meringue pie. You know, you want to <laughs> use it for like a pecan pie if you have to. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just imagining what a, a cannabis flavored uh, lemon meringue pie would taste like. Uh. <laughs> well, that's what we got into in the Bong Appetit book. Like, you know, very in depth was was pairing the flavors of the cannabis with different cuisines, um, using it in, in 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 a way to heighten the flavors of the mm -hmm. entire dish, rather than it just being something that you're trying to cover up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually kind of find its its proper place within the, the culinary uh, uh, toolbox. Um, I think that's that's really good. And while you were uh, going through this process, what um, what lessons did you learn as far as things that maybe you should never do when you're cooking with cannabis? The main thing is that you don't want to let the infusion go too long because it'll get bitter. And that oh, goes okay. against like some of the traditional wisdom is that you have to do this really long infusion time. And when you do that, the plant matter is just breaking down so completely and getting really crispy that like a bitterness will come out in your infusion. You really don't have to do it any longer than 45 minutes to an hour. And the lower the temperature that you use, the less likely you are to get any kind of like burnt taste. Um, that's also a consideration if you want to decarb your cannabis before infusing it. Mm -hmm. If you want to maximize every little milligram of THC, um, you definitely want to decarb first and then do the infusion. And so decarb, that just means that you're converting all of the acidic THC that's present mm -hmm. in the raw plant or the dried flower into the psychedelic version of THC. Um, and so if you absolutely want to maximize that, decarb is a good step, but it makes, it, it toasts the flower. So it tastes kind of toasty. So a lot of times I like to skip the decarb step and I feel like I get a better flavor that way, uh, at least for my personal taste. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it touches on another thing that I was interested to explore, which is the role that 
the terpene fraction of the cannabis flower might play into all of this. And like you were saying, if you decarb it, obviously you're going to be purging, you know, all of those um, uh, aromatic components out and they form new things and they, they tend to, yeah, not smell too great or taste great. Um, how, how, if, if at all, how do terpenes play into how you think about using uh, particularly herbal cannabis or even extracts, I guess, if they're terpene rich, um, when you're making things that you're not decarbing? Yeah, if you want to use terpenes, um, you have to do it in a cold preparation because they're <laughs> so volatile. They'll, they'll evaporate when the heat is applied. Um, so they're kind of preserving terpenes is at cross purposes with maximizing THC. Um, so we talk about this a lot in the Bong Appetit cookbook, and we give some suggestions as to like how you can use terpenes in a cold preparation. Um, and what I really like about the flavor pairings of cannabis and how you can maximize the the pairing cannabis strains with dishes, like that's really where yeah. we look at the terpenes. Like if you're suppose you're uh, creating a menu and you want to have a progression of paired strains along with each course. Then you would look at the terpenes in each strain that you're smoking and attempt to match it with the flavors in the dish. And this is something that I experienced for the first time with uh, Corrine Carroll from the Canisaurus series. Uh, she's the chef there. And I love her, her method of doing the joint progression that you start out with like a really, like a, suppose you start with a sativa that's very lemony um, and you would pair that with um, suppose like a ceviche or something that has a lot of citrus flavors to it. And then as the courses get more rich, the uh, cannabis yeah. also gets, you know, richer and more flavorful till you know, at the end of the night, you maybe you're having a steak with a, a chimichurri sauce and some red wine. And you would pair that with like a really deep flavorful strain of something like a, sour diesel or like a really gassy savory strain like gmo yeah that's that's pretty cool to think about it that way of changing your your terpene profile as the uh as the courses progress uh that's something i hadn't considered that's pretty interesting i like it because it's a parallel to wine and how you yeah. pair wine mm -hmm. with meals it makes it easier for people to understand how cannabis can be this culinary enhancer um, and also with terpenes, I think there's a lot of fun things that you can do with cocktails. And I, I like to see hmm. the mixologists who are who are playing around in that world. Yeah, yeah, there's there's so much to do, especially given that um, essential oils are already used in uh, in cocktails to, <clears throat> to different degrees anyway, and other plants and mint plants and different things. So, yeah, that's a that's a whole other world, it seems like um, to explore. Um, all sorts of recipes to be had there. And when people get into edibles, one thing that's really common is uh, there's kind of an intimidation factor, uh, particularly for folks that might be more naive that haven't um, taken ed edibles before or very much, or you know they don't use cannabis very much. Uh, and so edibles can be very intimidating because they can they produce effects that are different than if you smoke or you know anything else because of the way the liver processes everything um so do you have any advice for people that might be feeling that intimidation about you know uh trying cannabis edibles of how to um 
you know, basically try to ensure that they have the best experience possible, that they don't take too much, uh, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And this is the cornerstone of the work that we do at Satori Chocolates in, in my day to day education of our customer base. We let everybody know that it's important to go low and slow, which basically means starting with a very low dose, making sure that you wait the full two hours for the effects to fully manifest before you uh, ingest any more cannabis infused food. So yes, we we encourage people to start with you know a two milligram blueberry or you know a three milligram strawberry and see how that makes them feel and then work their way up from there. And the state recommends that you limit your dosing to ten milligrams, which for some people can can be quite a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of one of the new things about the market these days is that there's a lot of microdosed products because. We want new users to have a good first experience. And the way that the markets used to be before it was regulated, there were a lot of things out there that were just very, very strong. And people yeah. would literally bite off more than they could chew um, when you're looking at a brownie that has 500 milligrams and you don't know how much of it you're supposed to eat. So that's yeah. one thing that the regulations have done that's been successful is really make the products much safer for people who are new to using cannabis. Yeah, I remember uh, there was a conference I went to years ago now, but I remember uh, it was back when I was working in the cannabis testing space and we had a booth and and everything. And there was a lady that came up to us that brought her like 80 year old mother who was hooked up to oxygen and she wanted to try cannabis edible. And she was like, take a look at this product my mom has and let me know, you know, what to think about it. And she showed it to me and it was a candy bar that was like, uh, yeah, it was like 500 milligrams or 400 milligrams or something. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it's like if you I mean, this is someone who's very cannabis naive. And they said, you know, they said maybe break it in half. And I was like, um, maybe like by <laughs> a lot more than a half, uh, maybe by like a 30th. Um, but it was something that was very alarming um, back then before legalization and before there were testing rules before any of that um yeah it was common to see candy bars 500 milligrams thousand milligrams floating around um and this touches on another thing that i wanted to get your perspective on which is how the edibles market has evolved since those times um to today and and kind of um where it seems to be headed yeah yeah i used to judge edibles for the cannabis cup and so i saw all kinds of things throughout the years And the most dangerous were the things that weren't labeled at all, or it wasn't very clear that there was cannabis in it. And I'm not saying dangerous in the sense that like, it's not going to hurt you. Um, It's completely non-toxic, but it can be a negative experience for people and And it can make them, yeah. And it can make them never want to try it again. Um, So that's primarily what we're concerned about. We want people to have good experiences with cannabis. And so, yes, in the unregulated era, you know, hopefully they would list, you know, allergen warnings and a sense of how strong it is. Mm -hmm. If it's not lab tested necessarily, maybe it says one X or or double X, (laughs) double strength, but you don't really know what's being double compared to what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Compared to what? Um, So that's the biggest change that I've seen is that the products are obviously, you know, regulated very tightly, 
much more standardized, uh, much better quality controls. Um, on the flip side, for medical patients, it has gotten harder to find high-dose products, which a lot mm -hmm. of patients who are seeking to replace pharmaceuticals really rely on those high-dose products. And nowadays, you can only get that in like a capsule or, or tablet format. Um, so there's definitely been some downsides for medical patients, but there's been a lot of upsides for the average consumer who wants to try edibles and who wants to feel a, a safe and secure experience, but also one that's predictable and repeatable from one time to the next. Um, so that's kind of the biggest differences I see. The diversity of products that you mm -hmm. used to be able to get has greatly winnowed down uh, to now, you know, gummies and chocolates and basic baked goods are pretty much the bulk of the edibles market. There's some very interesting things going on with drinks and teas that I think yeah, is very cool. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the old school days of just getting ice creams and um, <laughs> beef jerkies and pickles and juice and just like wild stuff uh, has been all eliminated by the regulations. Uh, but you can still make those kind of things at home, which I think is uh, opening up new worlds for the home home cooks. And and what is it about the regulations that has driven some of those products out? Mostly it's, um, there's a prohibition on using dairy or anything that has to be held at a refrigerated ah. temperature. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like you can use dairy as an ingredient in, in a baked good that holds uh, stable at room temp, but you can't have ice creams or anything that has to be kept I refrigerated see. or frozen. That's basically because they can't call in the FDA to inspect these facilities because it's state legal, not federally, you know, the Federal Department right. of Agriculture or the USDA. Um, so that's basically why the restrictions are on meat and dairy ingredients. You know, I remember in Michigan one year we got uh, cannabis infused smoked salmon and it was awesome. <laughs> it was wow. so good. But like, yeah, you can't really regulate the sale of that. Yeah. And, and from my perspective, you know, from the analytical chemistry side, one thing that we always struggled with was some products, you know, are relatively straightforward to test as far as, you know, things like butters, infused olive oils, you know, uh, you know, uh, other infused vegetable oils, you know, simple things that are re relatively homogeneous. Um, those would be pretty easy. Then you get into um, things like gummies. Um, where you're you're starting to deal with some complex uh chemistry in the products themselves that make it hard to separate out the cannabinoids and then when you get into even more complex um products um it really gets challenging and we had people that like tried to bring us pizza one time to test <laughs> and we're like uh like we're just not <laughs> not equipped to try to deconstruct a pizza um <laughs> nor did we yeah. ever think that we should be um, and so another thing that I've thought is potentially just the some of those those challenges, I assume, probably makes producers frustrated. It's hard to get accurate results on certain types of products and, and some the labs just won't touch at all. And, and so I kind of wondered if that was also um, pushing some of those things, because I always thought it back then that it's like surely the all of these different products, surely it'll dwindle down to, you know, some basic things. And, and sure enough, it, it seems like it has. And one in, one thing I remember that was a problem is like for uh, beef jerky that relied on um, 
cannabinoids to essentially be added, you know, kind of like a salt um, on the outside of the beef jerky. It would usually kind of come off, flake off or whatever, gather in the packaging. I remember producers struggling um, with that. And so that touches on something I wanted to ask you, which is, are there certain foods that are not um, favorable to try to integrate cannabis with at all? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So obviously cannabis loves fat. Mm -hmm. uh, you usually traditional recipes are heavily reliant upon the cannabinoids binding to the lipid molecules and being digested. And like the marriage of the cannabinoids and the fats mm -hmm. is what makes it more bioavailable in your body. And so traditionally, yeah, the products would be infused with a, either a cannabis butter or co coconut oil or, or some kind of fat. Without that fat, when you're looking at things like gummies um, or drinks, mm -hmm. then you get into this new modern era of cannabis science and the different emulsion techniques. And that's something that's been very cool to learn more about as I've been at Canacraft, uh, making the beverages, making the gummies making them effective. Um, it requires a level of science that you can't just do in a, in a mm -hmm. home kitchen. Um, so yeah, obviously I think that things like, like sodas are pretty hard to infuse if you don't have a PhD and uh, the benefit of a professional manufacturing facility to do that kind of stuff. A lot of the early drinks that I remember seeing um, if you did a stability test on it and just let it sit in your fridge for a month, eventually all the hash oil congeals at the top yep. of the liquid. Um, so yeah, shelf stability is something that um, people didn't really use to test. They would just kind of mix it up and, and put it out there and see how it does. Um, and that's, you know, with the drinks, obviously, yeah, your emulsion will completely fall apart after a while. Um, but yeah, those are the challenges. And that's the the kind of the new frontier is uh, replacing alcohol or giving people more of a choice and a substitution mm -hmm. by having these, you know, sessionable beverages, I think is very cool. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember reading that um, one of the challenges with um, aluminum cans is that the lining in the cans was lipophilic. And so cannabinoids would also like soak into that lining and basically leach out of the the drink over time so just the potency um as it sat there would continue to go down and it's the the whole you know like we said before the whole world of of cannabis infused drinks is um uh very it presents very interesting interesting problems and you also raised another thing i wanted to ask you about which is canacraft itself um i mean they've been a huge player uh, like you said in the cannabis scene in california for a long time care by design you know all sorts of different things that they've that they've done um how did you cross paths with canacraft yeah canacraft is definitely a leader in the industry and a company that i had been following for a long time i greatly admire the work of people like martin lee and yeah. tiffany devitt who originally developed uh care by design and pioneered the cbd ratio formulations mm -hmm. Um, as well as people like Dennis Hunter and Ned Fussell, who are the co-founders and real OGs in the cannabis industry who have been around for a long time. And, um, you know, Dennis went to federal prison. And so they greatly understand that it's a movement before it's a business, but they've been able to successfully uh, transition into the legal regulated space. 
primarily because they were such pioneers. Um, but yeah, I got involved with Canacraft and I know some people over there and it really just, I was very happy to be able to join the organization because I care about that kind of authenticity and yeah. it's been really fun over there. It's uh, everyone's really great and I just learn a ton and there's so many talented people on staff. Yeah. And, and what are they, uh, can you describe a little bit about the confections that they make and, and some of the products that you're getting to work with currently? Yeah, so I work with uh, Chef Matt Kulzicki. He's our edible production manager. And so he makes all the chocolate products and does a lot of our R&D on uh, new confections. And so we have a great time brainstorming uh, new and different products. And uh, he also makes all the gummies uh, for Care by Design and ABX. And so, yeah, we're always developing new things. And it really has like a Willy Wonka uh, vibe to it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And so, uh, and the Satori line, something that we're very excited about is using, um, you know, nano emulsion in our chocolate, uh, so that it creates a fast acting effect. Mm -hmm. And we're introducing new fast acting chocolate bars that I'm very excited about. And we're pairing sustainably sourced, uh, cacao from Latin America, from farmer co-op with this cutting edge cannabinoid science to bring you a chocolate bar that tastes amazing without a hint of cannabis flavor, but you'll feel the effects much faster than traditional edibles. And like, that's the kind of stuff that I am so excited to do at Canacraft where it's really understanding the quality ingredients, the chef driven flavors and the great taste, but also being able to work with a PhD in, you know, cannabinoid science and molecular biology um, to make sure that people are feeling this, this really awesome effect from the, the, from the cannabis itself. You know, it's not just about yeah. the food and how it tastes. It's about how it makes you feel. Right. And this, this pursuit of a fast acting edible is one that, um, the market has sort of been demanding for a long time because people would like to be able to, you know, like you said, go somewhere socially, um, be able to have an alternative to alcohol or or a companion and um, and be able to to enjoy it and have the effects come on while you're actually having your social interactions not two hours later uh, when you've gotten home and you're ready to go to sleep and uh oh I made a mistake and now it's kicking in and I'm gonna be awake for a while um, oh well I guess it depends some people go straight to sleep but um, it's it's an interesting pursuit um and it's cool to hear that that's uh kind of where your where your mind's headed and i'm interested to see how some of these nano emulsified products um like pharmacologically i'm really interested to understand um the bioavailability dynamics there um because it could potentially allow people to take to get more effect from a lower dose as well um and essentially uh have everything be more efficient got a big truck hold on <laughs> no worries that was perfect timing too yeah the thing with the fast acting edibles is that it really goes back to the user experience and optimizing it for people who are new to cannabis mm -hmm. when you have a fast acting edible and you feel the effects much more quickly it eliminates the most common mistake that we see uh, with negative experiences which is the person eats a bite of a cookie they wait maybe a half hour, 45 minutes. It, oh, it's not working. I don't feel it. So then they eat more 
And then two hours later, they're uncomfortably high because they they inadvertently ingested too much because they got impatient. You know, it's hard yeah. to wait for the two hours. Um, so yeah, when it comes on much more quickly, then the user is able to titrate and say, yeah. well, I will have a little bit more. Um, I do want to keep this going and at a pace that's comfortable for them. And we just had an article come out in Playboy talking about how fast-acting edibles are perfect for a quickie, um, which was, it was, yeah, it was uh, pretty sexy stuff, but uh, it was very cool. And it talks about how having that shorter onset time mm -hmm. um, makes it easier to set a romantic mood. You know, you're not guessing or you're yep. not waiting for too long. Yeah, just that ability to plan in general is so nice because, yeah, a two-hour window... And, it, and it's so variable depending on, you know, how much have you eaten throughout the day and what are you eating it with? And there's so many different things that tie into that time of onset. And, you know, sometimes it can be as quick as 30 minutes or so, but in other times, two hours or more. So, yeah, that ability, that empowerment to say, all right, we're going to plan an activity and, you know, things are going to go relatively the way we expect. Um is really great. And are there any um, unique uh, challenges to working with nanoemulsified uh, cannabinoids? Uh, I'd love to introduce you to our, our head of new product development is uh, Matt Elms, uh, PhD. He's a great guy. Yeah, um, great. The challenge is you definitely have to test everything out very thoroughly. Mm -hmm. um, so we do a lot of R&D. Uh, it takes a long time. We have to be able to substantiate every marketing claim that we make. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we definitely delve into the science and we do as much re research as we possibly can. And yeah, things like the stability testing and just making sure that everything holds up over time. Um, so yeah, we, we do a lot of testing before we debut any new products just to make sure that all the details have been worked out. Yeah. And so that's kind of the biggest challenge is that you're trying something completely new and like you mentioned with the cans, like, you know, nobody thought about yeah. that until it happened, you know? Um, so yeah, as far as the challenges of the emulsification, it's, it's just a work in progress and it gets better all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And something I, I just thought about that I think would be good to talk about kind of going back to, we've sort of gone into the high tech and now to go back to the low tech, um, thinking about people in their, in their homes and their home kitchens and things. There's so many different types of carriers that people could use. So, you know, and we've mentioned a lot of them from butter to MCT oil to different vegetable oils, uh, et cetera. Um, do you have recommendations for people on um, types of carriers that tend to be more shelf stable, that tend to be more favorable um, versus others? Because for instance, I know from working in the lab, like things that were usually in hemp seed oil often went rancid a lot faster than things that were in other thing, other types of carriers. So I know there's a, a gradient of shelf stability as well as flavors and other issues. So uh, can you just speak to that a little bit and give some, uh, some home cooks some potential recommendations on um, things that they should focus on and maybe certain carriers that are better ignored? Yeah, I did some work around this uh, when I was at High Times and we made a video about the different kinds of fats and like mm -hmm. a similar experiment where we infused uh, the same kind of cannabis into many different kinds of fats and oils. And then we took it to the lab and um, 
we didn't see, you know, a, a tremendous amount of, of variation, but it did seem like the saturated fats that are solid at room temp, you know, butter, mm -hmm. coconut oil, bacon fat, those things seem to pick up a little bit more THC compared to fats that are liquid, like olive oil, mm -hmm. um, grapeseed oil. Um, whatever you infuse, you should refrigerate it in general, unless you're using it right away, and that will help preserve those oils and, and uh, keep them from going rancid. You definitely don't want stuff to be exposed to sunlight or um, excessive oxygen. You want it to be kept airtight. And if you're not going to use your infused fat right away, you can freeze it. Um, so it's definitely important for people to realize that once you've infused the cannabis in there, uh, especially with butter, you know, it can get moldy uh, faster than like regular butter would. Um, yeah. So once you've made a, essentially a compound butter, if you're not using it within, you know, five days, you should probably freeze it and then it'll stay good in your freezer for a couple months. Nice. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. One thing I, I wanted to change gears a little bit away from the edibles, because I know you have an extensive background in uh, the medical community in in California you used to work with WAM, isn't that right? Or you volunteered um, with WAM back in the day, isn't that right? Yeah, that's a big reason why I chose to live in Santa Cruz. Uh, mm -hmm. I moved to California in 2010 from New York City and uh, ended up at in Santa Cruz because I had met uh, Mike and Valerie Corral from WAM. I met them at the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, and and we really got to hang out and spend a lot of time with each other and. I was really impressed with what they were doing. And so, yeah, I started volunteering with WAM in 2010. Um, we would go up for, for garden days on the weekends and, and work all day tending the plants and watering them and leafing them. And uh, patients would go up there and make their own uh, capsules and they would trim flour. And it was just a really beautiful experience and a wonderful organization. And I learned so much, you know, coming from New York and, and working at high times, you know, I understood academically about medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, I had read a lot about it, but coming to Santa Cruz and, uh, and the WAM collective, you meet dozens of people who tell you their stories and say that, you know, I was given six months to live and here I am five years later and it's all because of cannabis. Uh, it's very powerful. And, WAM is continuing into this new era. Um, it's taken them a little while to transition, and it's taken a while for the for the laws to catch up. But it is possible to do uh, compassionate care and donations again in California. And so nice. WAM has relaunched as WAM Phytotherapies, and oh, they that's have exciting. yeah, they've brought a a, a brand of flower uh, to market. And they're working towards uh, being able to build a community center that will be open to the public in Santa Cruz, you know, once we can do in-person uh, in person hanging out again. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, everybody should definitely check out Wham! And uh, I wish them nothing but success. Yeah, that's so cool. I had no idea they were they were reviving. I mean, um, I'm originally from the southeast. And when I grew up, you know, studying cannabis and looking at organizations out West to understand what all was going on. And I remember, you know, at length following Wham and seeing that model that they had put together and uh, patient stories and everything. And so even, you know, like 2000 miles away, um, that organization was very inspiring. And so I thought it was really cool when I saw in uh, one of your bios that you 
that you worked with them. And are there any um, patient stories in particular that that really kind of grabbed your heart while you were there that um, that kind of uh, in, furthered that passion that was that was building? Oh, so many people, uh, so many good friends, um, yeah. people like Kathy Rock and Diane and Gloria and just like so many people um, that they really brightened my life. Um, especially Kathy Rock. Uh, she became a really good friend of mine and um, just a beautiful older woman, long white hair. She always wore tie dyes. Uh, she really loved the dead. <laughs> Um, yeah, just so many great active seniors that we made friends with throughout the years. And it's tough because you're in this organization and you realize mm -hmm. that like a lot of your friends are going to pass away. Mm -hmm. And uh, Valerie Corral, who is the co-founder of WAM, she does a lot of uh, death midwifery is what they call mm -hmm. it. And she has an yeah. organization called Rada Kuho, which is all about planning how to transition um, in, in the most great graceful and, and beautiful way possible. So that's also something that I learned a lot about from Valerie and uh, that I really admire about her is that she's been present um, for the deaths of, you know, dozens and dozens of people. Gosh, and yeah. she helps them uh, through that and helps their families as well. That's such a special sort of, um, I don't know, almost a, a, uh, um, I don't know what the, the word would be like in, uh, ordination or something to have to you know be in that role and learn um how to be with people through their last moments and how to assist their loved ones and through all those transitions um that's such a important and and heavy responsibility um but it's 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 true. I mean, when we when we zoom out of the cannabis industry a bit and we start to refocus on the patients and to think about um, you know the what people are going through that are using this plant for very serious issues. I remember when I worked in the lab before testing rules were really implemented. A lot of the testing that we did was directly with patients, and I really loved that period of time it was a really kind of special uh really it only lasted about a year in oregon but um there was a special period of time where we got to interact with a lot of you know a lot of people that were older that were fighting cancer fighting different things and were making their own preparations at home and dosing was very important um you know they were trying to be consistent and they needed things to be potent and you know and there were several times that I'd come home and just have to cry a little bit because you just like you're just around so much like even though they're going through so much there's so much positivity still pouring out of a lot of these people and um, they have such a, a good energy and then you know eventually you don't see them anymore and um, it's a uh, yeah it's a really heavy thing but it's something that um, I think especially a lot of us that have been a part of the medical cannabis programs in one form or another um it's in i don't know it's it's like a it's a it's something i i feel very humbled to have experienced um because now that the cannabis industry is getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, a lot of the stories and a lot of that um side of things it just feels a little diluted like you don't hear about it as much or see it quite as much there's a lot of other 
talk and marketing and stuff going on. Um, and so it's, it's nice to, I think, and I think really important to stop and, and remember those things um, and how cannabis has affected people um, in very serious ways. And that's why, once again, I'm so stoked that Wham! is, is coming back. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, we're very excited about it. And, you know, honestly, one of the most important things about Wham! is that, you know, it wasn't just the cannabis, it was the community that it yeah. created. Mm -hmm. And so you have a social safety net, you have people who can help you through tough times, and even little things like at a Wham! meeting, somebody would stand up and be like, I need help moving this weekend. Does anybody have a, a, a pickup yeah. truck? And just that kind of community support. And working in the garden and seeing the plants grow and tending to them you know that really became therapeutic in its own right um yep. you know really helped people being taking a hand in, in making their own medicine and what are your thoughts now looking at how the cannabis industry has evolved um um you know kind of what's your perspective there are you relatively pleased with how things seem to be um, transpiring, or do you have some things that you kind of hope to see see change or, or evolve? Yeah, and what I like to say is that, you know, legalization is not an event, it's a process, and we're yeah. still at the very mm -hmm. beginning of this process. Um, is it ideal how it's rolled out in California? No, I think there's a lot of equity issues that we have to work mm -hmm. on. There's a lot of tax issues that we have to work on. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be done to support patients and compassionate care and not let that fall by the wayside. And I think it's very important to amplify those businesses that are rooted in the medical marijuana movement and that do still care about taking care of patients. Um, but yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do. I think national legalization is obviously the next step mm -hmm. and getting, um, Honestly, a lot of the really boring things I earned out, like things like banking, things like yeah, the ability yeah. of small businesses to get loans. Because um, right now you have to be either privately funded by wealthy individuals or you have to seek venture capital. And it makes it really, really hard for small businesses to grow. Yeah. Um, so we need to be, make sure that more people can get into the industry and that it's not just restricted to people who are already very wealthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and in my mind, it's one of those things where time is really of the essence, because as the industry continues to grow and evolve, and as these uh, different companies get established, um, the the playing field starts to change even more, and um, you get consolidations of businesses and stuff. And so, particularly the equity piece, it's something that I've talked about several times on the podcast but something that i really urge people to think about urgently because um that becomes a harder situation to deal with the more that time goes on um, because you have an industry a market that is maturing and finding its feet and and companies that are you know really starting to come into their own and 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 start to um kind of solidly take part of the market so it's that those are those are things that have been on my mind too and as far as the edibles side of things go, um, what do you think we can expect from the next several, next couple of years, three or four years um, of the edibles industry as it matures and evolves? Do you foresee certain types of products maybe on the horizon that might become popular or 
and we've already talked about drinks and things like that. So maybe we've already hit it. But where do you see the, the edibles market going in the next couple of years? Well, previous to the whole pandemic situation, uh, yeah. if I can take us back to that wonderful time of uh, last year. Right. Can anyone remember? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you had asked me this question last year, I would have said restaurants are the new frontier. And yeah. being able to get that kind of stuff regulated and permitted and um, sort, sort out the details of how we can actually serve infused food to people in a restaurant setting and or be able to allow uh, cannabis smoking in like an outdoor patio type of like restaurant setting. Yeah. And there were some pioneers who were who were starting to work on that. You know, there was the OG Cannabis Cafe in L.A. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of underground supper clubs that were doing really wonderful work in normalizing cannabis hospitality. And obviously now that's all taken a backseat, you know, with mm -hmm. what's going on. But hopefully at some point when we're able to realize that vision, you know, that's really what I think is going to be happening hopefully in five years we'll have um you know just like every restaurant that's successful needs to have a liquor license i want to be able to give people alternatives where they can go and smoke a joint before their appetizer shows up and uh, have that be acceptable in a social yeah. setting i really would like to see um the the monopoly of alcohol on our socialization, mm -hmm. I, I would like to see that go away. And I would love to see like an Amsterdam type, you know, situation where you can, there's consumption lounges, there's safe places where you can sit and smoke a joint and order a coffee or uh, even a full meal. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think too, going back to the medical stuff again, you know, there are some people that depending on medications they're taking, if they're going through radiation treatments or whatever, um, you know, that may want to go out with friends, they struggle with appetite and being able to be able to get a quick dose of cannabinoids in the system to stimulate that appetite so that they can even enjoy being at the restaurant. Um, you know, that would help a lot of people uh, that are in situations like that, where they're not trying to bring attention to themselves, you know, they're not to <laughs> all they all they need is just a a designated safe place to be able to you know whether it's smoking or vaping whatever they need to do and then be able to enjoy the food um so there's that aspect too that i think is important for people to consider um when thinking about you know um you know whether it, it'd be valuable to pursue um doing something like that you know it's examples like that come to my mind all the time exactly um and yeah, cannabis has been proven to make food smell and taste better uh, for anyone. And that's, that's basically what the munchies are. Yeah. So whether you need to stimulate your appetite uh, due to uh, a medical concern or whether you just you want to heighten that experience by having a couple puffs, um, it behooves the restaurant, honestly, because you're likely to order a lot. Right. More. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wow, we've noticed that our our average tables have uh, started spending twenty percent more than than they used to. <laughs> yeah, it's ex excellent point. And I see we've we've been going here for almost an hour, so I'll start to to wrap things up here. But um, it's been great being able to to talk to you about about all of the stuff. I've I've learned a little bit, and I'm sure people listening have have learned a ton. Um, at the end of 
my conversations, I like to, um, you know, essentially hand the platform over to you. Um, if there's any sort of last words you want to throw in or any topics we haven't gotten into that you think would be valuable to, to get into, I've definitely got the time and willing to do that. Otherwise, uh, let people know how to learn more about the the Satori line and Canacraft and your own work and uh, the books uh, that you've authored and all the stuff. Um, you know, the, the podcast is now yours to do with as you wish. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> totally. Yeah, something um, something that I'm very excited about that we've been working on um, for the you know past six months uh, is using the chocolate as an ingredient in recipes. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of a lot of my friends who are cannabis chefs who were you know previously running supper clubs and um, you know their businesses are now permanently on hold, um, we approached many of these leading chefs in the cannabis culinary movement and tasked them with using the Satori chocolate in a dessert recipe. And um, it's a fun, easy way to uh, dose homemade edibles at home, uh, make some really decadent desserts. And so all of those recipes are up at uh, satorichocolates.com. And uh, yeah, we really want to align with home cooks and people in the cannabis culinary movement and push that agenda forward and teach people new and interesting ways um, to, yeah, melt the chocolate and make some cupcakes or make a tiramisu yes. or make some pudding. Uh, whatever you want to make with cannabis chocolate, uh, we're there for you. Um, yeah, and follow us on Instagram at Satori Chocolates, uh, Twitter, Facebook. We're all over the place. And uh, yeah, we want to hear from people. And um, we're going to be working on some new products. They're going to come out uh, through the fall and winter. And yeah, we'll give you more details uh, when that develops. Nice. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I'll be following. Uh, uh all of the different stuff Canacraft does anyway. But um, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on specifically all the Satori stuff and uh, see um, what fun stuff you have in store. It'll be cool. And everyone listening, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to cacpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, mostly on Instagram. I always tell people that's that's the main place we actually update things. Um, but thanks so much for tuning in. And I, once again, at least, I appreciate you being willing to give me the past hour. It was really fun getting to, to dive into all of this stuff. Thanks, listeners, for uh, tuning in for the hour. Uh, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 